Do you know anybody who is in your family or a friend of yours who you would describe as an abundant giver? I don't just mean money. I just mean life in general. They're just, they're just an abundantly generous person. When I think of that, I think of my mom. My mom is an abundant giver. She, she loves to give to others and not just give. She uh, is not ever content just to, to give to others. She always loves to add something extra when she gives. It's not enough that maybe she stayed up hours into the night making a homemade chocolate pie or German chocolate cake for you, but when she gives it to you, she always says, oh, and here's a little something else I, I thought you might like. It's just a sweet, beautiful picture of someone who has a heart for really going the extra mile, giving the extra portion in order to bless someone else. Today, we're going to see how God does that same thing for us. We're going to see how lavish his grace is. And we're going to see this uh, from a very unexpected chapter in the Bible. 2 Kings chapter 3 is not what you would call a well-known passage of Scripture. In fact, my guess is you've never heard a sermon from 2 Kings chapter 3, unless you've been in a church where the pastor teaches all the way through the Bible. And even then, there's a good chance that he skipped that one. Today, we're not going to skip it. Even though it's a chapter that might easily be overlooked, uh, it seems like nothing more than some historical data about a few kings going to war and then some weird instructions about them having to dig a bunch of ditches in a valley. And so it could easily be sort of set aside as something that's not quite as important as the big exciting chapters, but uh, I have been really filled with anticipation for today to dig beneath the surface here and see uh, some really beautiful and helpful truths that God has for us in this passage. So in our study through the Bible, we saw two weeks ago that wicked King Ahab died under the direct word and providence of the Lord. We saw last week how Elijah was taken up into heaven and how Elisha now is the prophet in Israel. And so I want to read the first, um, I think it's maybe seven verses of 2 Kings chapter 3, just to help set the scene for us here. So we begin with verse 1. It says, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. How's that for an epitaph? He did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother, Ahab and Jezebel. For he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. And then we get to that painful word, nevertheless. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Verse 4. Now Misha king of Moab was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and assembled all Israel. He brought the troops together. Verse 7, then Jehoram went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. 
I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And we read that and think, I am already completely confused with who these people are. So let's take a quick second. We have three main characters in these opening verses. First, we have Jehoram, who is the king of Israel. Then we have Jehoshaphat, who is the king of Judah. And then we have Misha, who is the king of Moab. And we can learn an awful lot from, from these three men. We could take a week easily, I think, on each of them. But just briefly, so we saw here Jehoram, the son of Ahab, is at least credited for not being quite as evil as his father and mother had been. It says that he did at least remove, to take down the, uh, the pillar of Baal that his father had set up. And we go, okay, that's good, sort of. But then there's verse 3. That starts with the word, nevertheless. Take a look at that again on the screen. Nevertheless, he did what? He, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam, we go way back to, uh, I think it's 1 Kings um, 12, where we were introduced to Jeroboam, who ruled after Solomon, and he introduced uh, worship of golden calves there. And that sin that Jeroboam brought has been like a slow infection that's been creeping through the people of God for years and years and years. And now here we get way down the line, and we see that Jehoram is still holding on to those sins that Jeroboam introduced a long time ago. You can, you can almost feel the, the frustration and the disappointment of the Bible here when it says he got rid of one evil thing. Nevertheless, he held on to other sins. He's one of those half-measure people. He's one of those half-hearted commitment kind of people, never fully committing himself to doing what was right. Now, Jehoram wasn't a follower of God, but you and I are. And as his followers, we do not have the option of being half-hearted, half-measure followers of his. Let me remind you of the words that Moses charged God's people with back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. He said this, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God by walking in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord that I am giving you this day. Why? Because God wants to weigh you down? No, for your own good. So what does God want from you? Oh, only everything. Only everything that you are, everything that you have, completely, unreservedly, forever. And you might think, you know, if you, if you haven't spent time in church, you might think, well, who does God think he is to demand something like that of me? Well, let's look at the next verse. Verses 14 to 21 summarize this. Behold, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, and the earth and everything in it. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God. He is your praise, and he is your God who has done for you these great and awesome wonders that your eyes have seen. Oh, that's right, that God, the one who is the creator and sustainer and ruler over everything. Listen, he will not accept half-hearted devotion. 
no more than you would accept that from your spouse. Imagine your spouse saying, I love you, but nevertheless, there's someone else across town I love as well. Who would, who would want to live with that? And as heartbreaking as that would be to any of us to hear our spouse say those words, multiply that by a trillion or something, and maybe we're starting to get close of the heartache that we bring to God. When we say, God, I love you. I'm all yours. I'm all in. I'm committed to you. Nevertheless, I want to fiddle around over here with this stuff. This thing that we see Jehoram doing is not some distant old Dusty historical fact that has no relevance to us. I would suggest to you that what we see here directly relates to our life today. Because you and I can be just like Jehoram. There are so many examples. Maybe your marriage is intact. But the truth is, behind the scenes, you know that you're not committed to your spouse. There are things that you're hiding from your spouse. There are thoughts or actions that you keep secret. Maybe your relationship looks good in public, but behind the scenes, it's just barely hanging by a thread. That's Jehoram. Half committed. Maybe your church attendance is impeccable. I mean, you could go back to when you were four years old and show all the gold stars that you've won for Sunday school and church attendance. I mean, it's flawless. And in the eyes of other people, they look at you and go, wow, I wish I was like that. But the truth is, your own personal love and hunger for God died a long time ago. And you're just on autopilot. You're just showing up and going through the motions. That's Jehoram. We've got to be very careful not to say, well, I'm doing good in this one thing over here. Let's talk about that, hey? How good am I doing here? When all the while, we're allowing other areas of our life to go unchecked. So that's Jehoram. And then we've got Jehoshaphat. We talked about him uh, already in the recent weeks, so I won't spend a lot of time on this, but I'll just sum it up like this. Jehoshaphat shouldn't even be in this chapter. And it's a shame that his name appears with these other wicked men. He shouldn't even be here. We've already seen earlier how he made an alliance with wicked King Ahab. God called him out for that later at the end of 1 Kings. And now he's doing the very same thing with Ahab's son, Jehoram. The Bible tells us at the end of 1 Kings, Jehoshaphat was a man of God. He's a man who followed God and walked in his ways, except that... He did not tear down all the places of idol worship, and he made an alliance with King Ahab. He's a man of God. He has no business partnering with these wicked kings, never never mind going to war with them. And this decision that he's making here is going to put him in a real bad situation in just a moment. And then thirdly, we have Mesha, or Mesha, however you pronounce it. He is the king of Moab. The Moabites have a long, long, horrible, terrible history of evil all the way back to Lot's daughters. When Ahab was alive, he was forcing King Mesha to pay him an exorbitant, we would say, tax. We just read the numbers there earlier of the lambs and the the rams. Every year, he had to pay this to King Ahab, but the scriptures tell us now that old Ahab is dead, Mesha said, I'm not paying that anymore. 
It's almost like he was being held for ransom. And he just uh, called their bluff. He said, I'm not going to do it. And so that's why Ahab's son Jehoram now is rounding up some others to go to war against uh, Misha, king of Moab. So we got Jehoram, we've got Jehoshaphat. They've combined their forces and they're going to fight the king of Moab. And they decide to, to march their troops to Moab by way of a place called Edom, E-D-O-M. And the reason they did that was so that they could, when they got to Edom, they could pick up the king of Edom and let him join in with them. So now there would be three kings going to war against Moab. Verse 9, so the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they marched on that roundabout route, or it could be interpreted that meandering route, that long meandering route, seven days, and there was no water for the army nor for the cattle that followed them. Now, there was a shorter route to get there, a much shorter route, but they chose to go this way. And it took them along a much longer, rougher route to get to Moab. And it took them so long that they ran out of water in this very dry and hot part of the world. And running out of water there puts you in a dire situation. These kings and all of their people and all of their animals, they weren't just thirsty now. They were facing death. So this isn't like, hey, can we pull off the next exit? I want to get a large sweet tea, you know kind of got a hankering for something. This was way past that. They were facing possible death. And just like people do when things go wrong, Jehoram immediately blames God. Verse 10. And the king of Israel said, alas. Anybody use that word this week? See if you can work it into a sentence this coming week. Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. No, the the truth is, God hadn't called these kings to do anything. They hadn't even sought the Lord on their plans. But of course, now that their plans have gotten them into trouble, suddenly it's God's fault. Well, at least Jehoshaphat remembers where to turn for help, verse 11. But Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, The son of Shaphat is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. That's to see Elisha. Now, I'll point this out just quickly because we've talked a little bit about from way back in 1 Kings chapter 19, where Elijah called Elisha into the ministry of prophet to succeed him. And all those years that Elisha spent in the shadows, in the background, just serving Elijah. He didn't have a name. He didn't, it wasn't a big shot. And here now, all these years later, isn't it interesting how this, uh, this man said, Elisha, you know, we, we can go see Elisha. Remember, he's the one who poured water on the hands of Elijah. You know what he's saying? He, he was the servant. He was the servant who had to wash his master's hands and feet and sweep the floor and do all that stuff. Elisha is still remembered by some people as just being the the number two guy. And he's okay with that. So off they go to see the prophet Elisha, and they get a rather surprising, unexpected response. Verse 13. 
And Elisha said to the king of Israel, now remember, he's talking to the king. You understand? You mess with the king. Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, no, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Again, it's another lie. God never called these kings to do this. Elisha is bluntly saying, hey, if your gods are so great, go talk to them. I'm sure they'll help you. And of course, in his heart, Jehoram knows that that's a a wasted effort because their gods cannot hear or see or feel or help. Elisha's seen this before, how people want nothing to do with God until there's a problem, and then they want God's help. We wouldn't know anything about that in our society today, would we? Do you know the highest church attendance in recorded U.S. history was the Sunday after 9-11? Oh, people were busy with their own lives and plans prior to that. Go to church with you? I don't think so. Oh, when the buildings fell, those people got in their car the next Sunday and they found a church to go. You know why? Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has put eternity in the hearts of men. They all know. They all know where to go for help when everything is falling apart. But boy, it's hard to get people to admit that. They all know. But you know, those crowds who went to church after 9-11, they weren't interested in submitting their lives to God. They just wanted him to fix the problem. And that's what Jehoram is doing here. Do we ever use God as a spare tire in our trunk? Lord, that committing to you stuff, eh, that seems like kind of a drag. But I'll let you know if I need you. Verse 14, Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, If I did not have regard or respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. In other words, I wouldn't look at you or even acknowledge you. I mean, these are strong, fearless words. Elisha is making it clear that the only reason he's going to seek God for help for these men is because of the presence of a godly man named Jehoshaphat. And I I think this to me is a fascinating point that the unsaved world is oblivious to. Listen, the very presence of godly people is often the one thing that is holding back God's judgment on those who've rejected him. My mind goes to Genesis chapter 18, the last part of chapter 18, where God says he's getting ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their unrivaled wickedness. And Abraham says, Lord, if they're just... 50 people there who love you, would you spare the city? God said, I sure would, for the sake of 50. And Abraham sort of negotiates down because he knows he ain't going to find 50 people in those cities who love the Lord. It was a terrible place. He gets down to 10. He says, Lord, how about 10? If I can find 10, would you spare the city? God said, yes, I would for 10 people who love me. You understand the significance of that? That's huge. Your presence in this world how can I say this? It's, it's shifting the balance of God's judgment from falling. I just wonder, I wonder about America. America hasn't always been a great nation. I understand that. We've got a long list of problems and failures. 
But my dad tells me of a time when there was at least an undercurrent, a foundation of respect for God, even among those who were unsaved. He tells me he used to go sometimes to the little old Andy Griffith barbershop with his dad on Saturday mornings, and all the men would sit around talking, not Christians, just guys, you know? But he said, the moment the minister walked in, every one of those men stood to their feet. You say, what does that mean? Oh, imagine that happening today. That's long gone. See, even among the ungodly, there was a time in our country when there was just this built-in respect, understanding for the things of God. I wonder if our presence, living as light in this dark world, I wonder if that has caused God's hand to withdraw from the judgment that he was about to bring. And I wonder how much longer he's going to withhold that. The lost world, listen, has no idea. They have no idea how much grace they've received, all because there are godly people around them. And that's exactly what we see in the rest of this chapter. We see the extravagant love and grace of God being poured out even on the ungodly. Verse 15 Elisha says, but now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. Again, that's a sermon uh, of its own. Sort of reminds you of David playing the harp for Saul to calm him down, to bring a better spirit into the place. Music is powerful, folks. It's a powerful entity. Verse 16, and he said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind nor rain, yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. And so first, God says, look, even though you've turned your back on me all these years, you've ignored my calls of kindness, I'm going to miraculously provide water for you, and I'm going to provide it in abundance. But then God says in verse 18, don't miss this, here's the Here's the fulcrum of this chapter, the pivotal point in this chapter. God says, and this is but a light thing or a simple thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. He's saying, providing water for all of you thousands of people and your animals, that's nothing for me. But in order to demonstrate my incredible power and my goodness to you, I'm also going to deliver the Moabites into your hands. It's, it's getting that chocolate pie with the little extra thing that you didn't expect. And it's not just going to be a small victory. Verse 19, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall cut down every good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Hey, this victory that God is going to give them, it's going to be complete. It will leave no doubt whatsoever that it was God who brought about this victory. Do you understand? This is the pattern we've seen throughout the Old Testament. God wants everyone to come to know him because that's what they were created for. He wants everyone to worship him and glorify him. And he, over and over, he does these incredible things so that people will stop in their tracks and look and go, God did this, and fall on their knees and worship him and glorify him because that's what the entire planet is supposed to be doing right now. 
We don't have time to read it all, but verses 20 to 25 explain how God brought this about. It tells us first that the next morning, God made water flow down into this valley and completely filled up the entire area. All those ditches they had been digging, I guess, all night. These irrigation ditches, God said, go, go dig some ditches because water's coming and you're going to need to be able to store it. It's coming. Imagine going out and digging ditches all night by faith that water is coming. You digging any ditches for God? We doing anything by faith? Are you as an individual or a family or are we as a church doing anything that just looks crazy? Because we have faith in God who will provide. God made water flow down. It didn't rain. We don't know where it came from. We're not told. We're not supposed to know. But the next morning it came and it filled up that entire area. And then it tells us that the Moabites got up early that morning. They looked down into this valley and it says that the angle of the sun was reflecting off of this water in such a way that the, the orange sunrise, I guess, made this water look like blood. And so these Moabites concluded by that, rather foolishly, that these three kings down there who had been camped in this valley, they had all gone to war against each other and slaughtered each other. And this was all their blood that they're seeing down there in this valley. And so they said, hey, now that they're all dead, let's go down and steal all their stuff. And that's exactly what they did. But when they got there, the Israelites attacked them and wiped them out. So God has literally delivered the enemy into the hand of these kings, just as he said he would do. But here's, here's what I don't want us to miss, and it's so easy to miss this. None of this would have happened without the goodness and grace of God. And it all stems from verse 18. Show that again. And this is but a light thing. This is a small thing in the sight of the Lord. Giving you water, it's a small thing. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. I want you to really notice those words. Because whether you realize it or not, that verse applies directly to your life and mine today. What we're seeing there is the extravagant grace of God he not only satisfied their thirst, but he gave them more than they even asked for, and they didn't deserve any of it. And God does this for us all the time. Every one of us can look back over the years. Every one of us. And we can see times when God didn't just barely deliver us from trouble. But he also said, hey, that's a small thing for me to do for you. I'm going to do far more than that just because of my love for you. We can all look back and see times when we messed things up so badly because of our selfishness or our pride or our greed or our stubbornness. Now we look back and we recognize so clearly if it hadn't been for the grace of God, my life would have been ruined. Anybody relate to that? My life would have been ruined. We need to pause more often than we do and go search for the fingerprints of God's grace in our past. They're all over. Not one of us 
would be here today without the grace of God. Not one of us. It's one of the characteristics of God that we've already seen all the way through our study. We've seen it repeatedly through the Bible up to this point. And it's one of the characteristics also that permeates the New Testament. Imagine how hard God could have made us work in order to pay for our sin. Would that have been an unfair thing? No, not at all. Imagine how hard he could have made it for us to find forgiveness. But instead, he said, I'm going to show you what grace really looks like. Rather than making you pay the price for your sin, I'm going to give my only son to take the wrath that you deserve so that you can go free. That's crazy. I can't help but think of John chapter 1. We know this well, but look at the words again. In the beginning was the Word. It's talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Boy, that's loaded. He's been there forever. And he is distinct, and yet he's equal with God. He did not have to try to grasp for the status of Equality with God, he already had it. This is the one we're talking about, and that's why verse 14 should never cease to blow our mind. And that same word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. What? That one. He came and lived with us. And we beheld his glory. Wow. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Here it is, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. You understand that we need both. Grace without truth is license. Truth without grace is legalism. We need both. If a church just preaches grace, they're making people feel good, but they're not preaching the gospel. And I would say equally as strongly, if a church is just preaching truth, and they're never preaching grace, they're condemning people to a life of burden-bearing that they cannot bear. Verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received, are you ready for this? Grace upon grace. Just think of that phrase. You have been the recipient of grace upon grace. Not just grace. Grace upon grace. Verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What's he saying here? He's saying you get far more from the fullness of Jesus than you could ever imagine. Whether we realize it or not, folks, we've all been the recipients of grace upon grace. God has lavished his grace on all of us. Grace upon grace, grace on top of grace, grace added to more grace, grace that just keeps on coming. I think of the father embracing the prodigal son who's just come home. That son who now says, I'm not worthy to be called your son after what I've done. Just make me one of your servants. That's all I'm asking. Father says, are you kidding I'm going to lavish my love on you. And he gives him a robe and a ring and a feast. And when we come to him by repentance and faith, 
being hopeful that he, he may choose to just barely save us from hell. God, I'm a sinner. I'm coming to you. And the most I can ask is that you would just barely save me from hell. But instead, the Father falls on our neck and kisses us. He forgives our sins. He puts a robe of righteousness on us. He doesn't just spare us from hell. He lavishes us in his grace. He adopts us into his family. He makes us heirs of all that is his. Abundant grace. He loves us exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ever ask or think. Well, here's what I would love. I would love if this chapter ended right there. That would be such a nice place to say amen, end of sermon. But God wants to show us one more thing to really drive this point home. The last two verses of this chapter, the last one really shows us a gruesome, unimaginable, stomach-churning act that was committed. But even in this, folks, maybe I should say, especially in this, the beauty and the grace of God shine through so clearly. Verse 26, and when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took 700 men with him who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. Verse 27, then he took his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation or anger against Israel, so they departed from him and returned to their own land. This man had been so blinded by the satanic lies of his false religion. He actually believed that by burning his own son to death, it would somehow cause his God to care and to grant his request. It's a startling example of the harsh demands that other religions place on their followers. And as we stand in, in horror, we look at that shocking scene. Don't miss the lesson here. God is saying, I wanted you to see how gruesome that was. And he says, do you see where pagans have to go in their desperation? Do you see the things they have to resort to just to try and be heard? Do you see the unthinkable demands that their gods place on them? And then he says, now do you realize the treasure you have in me? Do you realize how easy I've made it for you to come to me? Do you realize that I hear you every time you call? Deuteronomy 4.7 says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? He's always near to you, always listening to your every cry. God says, listen, he says, you don't have to sacrifice your son and hang him on the wall of the city to receive my love. Instead, I sacrificed my son and hung him on a cross just outside the wall of the city to show you that you're already loved. The price that other religions demand is very high. But we don't have to pay it because Jesus paid it all. He's paid it all. And today, as I close now, in this last minute or so, I'm calling our church family to recognize 
and praise God for his abundant blessings and grace to us, which are all so completely undeserved. The blessing of salvation through his son and the immeasurable blessings of grace that he showers so freely on us every day. God's abundant grace has set us free from our abundant sin. And it's his grace that sustains us every day, and it's his grace that will one day allow us to stand before him completely righteous. Do you know this grace? Have you received this grace? If you haven't, I, I beg of you not to walk out of this building today. There's nothing special about this building, but you're here. God is giving you this moment. It may not come again. Don't be a fool and walk away from the extended hand of God to you. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him.